those of you watching, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us online this morning, uh, wherever you may be. Um, if you have any questions or you um, have any comments, or please leave them there in the comment section, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. So this morning, um, I'm going to be continuing on with our story here in 2 Samuel. And today we're going to be in chapters 5 and 6. And I've titled today's message, United, Uniting a Divided Nation. After everything that we've seen David go through so far, we've now arrived at a point in, or a section in this story where he finally reaches the pinnacle to, of his rise to power. Up to this point, we've seen him go from a simple shepherd boy to a king of a divided nation. And so now as we begin chapters 5 and 6, we're going to see how David finally becomes the king over all of Israel, as well as the initial steps that he took to unite and strengthen the nation of Israel. As we look at our country today, we definitely see a divided nation. And so I believe that our country is desperately looking for someone to lead us, someone to lead this country that will bring us together, that will bring us together, unite us, and strengthen us as well. We've, we have too many leaders today that all they want to do is divide. They want to put a wedge between Americans. They want to have their own agenda. And it's sad. It's, I think that it's sad that we have yet to find a leader that we can turn to and say, this man is a humble man. This man is a, or woman is a godly man or woman. I certainly hope that one day we will. But it may not be until our Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior finally comes back to reign as king. They will finally unite all Christians, all believers together in his kingdom. So before we get into 2 Samuel chapter 5, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord, we are grateful that you saved us, you've forgiven us, that we are now made righteous because of your Son, Jesus Christ. We know we did nothing to deserve it. We know that had it not been for Jesus dying on the cross, we would be dead in our sins and, and heading towards destruction, Lord. Forever thankful and grateful that you've called us and now we're your children. So now as we get into your word, as we are gathered together, as you know, those that are watching and listening, I pray that you will bless this time, Lord. Speak powerfully through your word and through this message that you uh, gave me to prepare, Lord. And I pray that lives will be changed for all of eternity. Bless this time we have together, Lord. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Second Samuel, chapter 5. And the Word of God says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, you will shepherd my people and you will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron 
King David made a covenant with him at Hebron and the Lord's in the Lord's presence and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began his reign. In 40 years in Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. The king and his men marched uh, to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who inhabited the land. The Jebusites had said to David, you will never get in here. Even the blind and lame can repel you, thinking David can't get in here. Yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. He said that day, whoever attacks the Jebusites must go through the water shaft to reach the lame and the blind who are, who are despised by David. For this reason, it is said, the blind and the lame will never enter the house. David took up residence in the stronghold, which he named the city of David. He built it up all the way around from the supporting terraces inward. David became more and more powerful, and the Lord God of armies was with him. King Hiram of Tyre sent envoys to David. He also sent cedar logs, carpenters, and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. After he arrived from Hebron, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of those born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Shabab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibar, Elishua, Elishua Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Elida, and Eliphalet. Then the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, and they all went in search of David, but he, but he heard about it and went down to the stronghold. So the Philistines came and spread out in the valley of uh, Rephaim. Rephaim. Then David inquired of the Lord, Should I attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord replied to David, Attack, for I will certainly hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal Perazim, Perazim and defeated them there and said, Like a bursting flood, the Lord has burst out against my enemies before me. Therefore he named that place, the Lord bursts out. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. The Philistines came up again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not attack directly, but serve around behind them and come at them opposite of the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of the marching, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, act decisively. For then the Lord will have gone out ahead of you to strike down, down the army of the Philistines. So David did exactly as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Geba to Gezer. Well, here in this chapter, we learn three important factors that basically made David the real deal. Number one, his recognition as king. Number two, his validation as king. And number three, his resiliency as king. Now we first see in the beginning here how he was recognized and accepted as king over all of Israel. If you remember before this, he was just one of two kings in a divided nation, in a two-kingdom nation. In the north, the 11, tri 11 tribes led by Shibosheth and his commander, Abner. In the south, the single tribe of Judah was being led by David. But now with the assassination of Ishibosheth and Abner, the 11 tribes were left without a king 
or even an heir to Saul's throne. Now, back in chapter 3, we learned that before he died, Abner had begun paving the way for David to be, to be made king over the 12 tribes. So now that there was a void, it made sense for all these leaders now, all these leaders from these tribes to fill that void by convening at Hebron, at Hebron and crown David as king. Well, according to what was written in the Law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, these were the qualifications for Israel's kings. The first and foremost important requirement was that he be chosen by the Lord from the people of Israel, a king that the Lord your God chooses. The people knew that Samuel had anointed David king some 20 years before, and that it was God's will that David ascend to the throne. Also, the nation needed a shepherd, and David was that shepherd. Not only was he a shepherd literally when he was a young boy, a young man, but now he would be the shepherd of his people. Now, even though Saul had been the people's king, he wasn't really the Lord's first choice. You see, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that God had given them Saul, God had given the people Saul more so as a judgment against them, against the people, because they wanted to be like the other nations. However, the Lord loved his people and knew they needed a shepherd. So he equipped David to be their king. And furthermore, unlike Saul, who was a Benjamite, David was from the royal tribe of Judah, who was born and raised in Bethlehem. Now, this was key, because not only did he establish the dynasty that brought the Messiah into the world, but Bethlehem also became the place where Jesus was born. Well, once these leaders recognized that David was one of their own, an able leader, and that the Lord had called him to lead and shepherd his people, they installed him as king over the entire nation. David reciprocated this by entering into a covenant with them that specified the rights and obligations of each party. And thus began the reign of David over a united nation that was to last 33 years. And so in all, the entire time he was king in Hebron and Overall of Jerusalem was a total of 40 years. That would have made him about 70 years old by the time he died. Now the next thing we see in this chapter is his validation as king and shepherd of Israel. One of King David's first military acts was to capture the fortress on Mount Zion from the Jebusites. These heathen warriors had considered, considered their city so invincible that they even believed that it could be defended by the lame and the blind. Well, 
when David detected a weak point in the city's water system, he ordered his men to climb through a tunnel connecting the city's water supply to its interior reservoirs. This strategy ended up being successful. And Jebus, Jebus, the city, what it was called before, became Jerusalem, also called the city of David. And it became the capital of the nation of Israel to this day. The king then used the Jebusites' own words against them by referring to all the Jebusites in the stronghold as the lame and the blind, which then became a mocking jab at any pagan nation who thought they could conquer the Lord's people. So David's capture, expansion, and occupation of Jerusalem made it clear to all Israel and all the surrounding people as well that God was with him. He wasn't just some regional or some renegade tribal chief, but a powerful figure that they would all have to deal with. And this is seen when he received validation from King Hiram of Tyre, who provided materials and men to build David a palace. This validation by a wealthy and strong king convinced David that God had indeed established him and exalted his kingdom. Well, in verses 13 and 14, we're told that another way that he validated his reign as king was by enlarging his family at Jerusalem by taking on more concubines and wives and having more sons and daughters born to him there. The bad part about him taking on more wives and concubines was that it was a violation of Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17. There, the Lord said that Israel's king must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. But even in this, there's good. Because the royal line of the Messiah is traced through one of the sons that were mentioned here. Solomon. Solomon, who we'll later read about, ended up becoming one of the most successful kings in Israel. One of the wisest people that ever walked the face of this earth. And he was the king who eventually built the first temple of the Lord. Now, in the rest of this chapter, we see David's resiliency as a new king. In verses 17 through 25, David's old host, remember, he used to, you know, the, the Philistines had accepted him and had allowed him to live in one of their cities. And their, Israel's long, long-time enemy, the Philistines, they reemerge. They appear again in this story. But this time, however, they intended to use Israel's new leadership change to their advantage by disrupting Israel's unity and their new central government. And so David's leadership was tested by a strong enemy force that wanted to destroy him. In their first attempt, we read that the Philistines gathered their forces at the valley of Rephaim, which was south of Jerusalem. But rather than jumping ahead, rather than just going all out and attacking the Philistines, just like Saul had done, David did the right thing. 
by coming to God first and asking Him two direct questions. First, he wanted to know if he should attack the Philistines. And secondly, he asked the Lord, Will you hand them over to me? Well, David's direct questions were met with two direct responses from God. Attack, for I will certainly hand the Philistines over to you. So now that he was assured of victory by the Lord of armies, by the King of kings, by God himself, the creator of the universe, David attacked the foe and defeated them at a place called, that he ended up naming the Lord Bursts Out. Now why that name? Well, you see in that first battle, it says that God was like a bursting flood. And so we imagine that he breached, he made breaches in the ranks of the enemy there. These breaches resulted in chaos and the Philistines being defeated and them abandoning their idols right there on the spot, which were then seized by David and his men. And so I know you're probably wondering, why didn't they just destroy them? Why did they seize them and carry them off? Well, if you want to read another aspect of this story, I would recommend reading First Chronicles, because more is said about this battle. But in First Chronicles chapter 14, verse 12, it says there that these idols were actually burned so that they wouldn't become some stumbling blocks for future generations. It then says in verse 22, the Philistines then threatened Israel again when they spread out their forces in that same location they initially did the Rephraim Valley. So David once again came to God for guidance. But this time, God had a new strategy. He directed God, he directed David to circle around the enemy from behind and attack when David and his men heard the sound of the marching of marching in the tops of balsam trees. And so that's what David did. He followed God's orders. He did what he was commanded to do without hesitation, without questioning. And, and when they heard the signal, they immediately attacked and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. These two decisive military victories early in his reign showed friend and foe two important things about David. First, they saw that in spite of his new position as king, that he wasn't going to take it lightly, that he wasn't just going to lay or sit on his throne, be fed and be fed grapes and take naps in the middle of the day. And no, they saw that David remained resilient in the face of adversity. He wouldn't give up. And secondly, it was now clear that God's protection and power were on God's anointed king and his kingdom. David was recognized as king. He was validated as king. And he was resilient as king. And so we see this with Jesus as well. When John the Baptist met Jesus before he was again baptized, that's when he was recognized as God's son. 
He was validated after he was baptized, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, and God told and God spoke these words: "This is my Son, with whom I'm well pleased." And Jesus was resilient in the face of adversity. After all that he'd been through, he kept going. He never gave up his mission. He knew that this was the only, in spite of the rejection, in spite of how much he was hated on, how much he was despised, rejected, he continued to be resilient up until the end. He never gave up. He knew that he had to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. That was the only way. So as a Christian, we had to look to David and our Lord and Savior Jesus as examples for how to live our lives, how you can live your own life. It should be known by others. Others should recognize that you're a believer. You don't have to go around telling everyone, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, you know, I'm, or have to be wearing you know, Christian t-shirts wherever you go. You, you don't necessarily have to do that. You will be known by your fruit. You will be known by the love that you give to others. You will be known because you're different. Even if you decide, have decided or have made the choice to walk away from the Lord, people will still know there's something different about you. It's going to be hard to, to hide. Now, also, you don't need validation from people. But the moment you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He validated you. He validated you because now you're covered. Not only covered by the blood of Jesus and your sins are forgiven, but His Spirit now is in you, has made His home with you, in you. And now you're His child. And so as you go, also go through your trials. He strengthens you. He gives you what you need to be resilient in those trials, in those challenges, in those difficulties. When you're in the face of adversity, come to Him. And He will give you what you need to overcome. Well, sometime after the events of chapter 5, David suddenly remembers one of the most vital possessions that has given Israel its unique identity as God's chosen people. And so if you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to see together what that was, which was another significant step that David took to unite the nation and strengthen the people that he had been called to lead. So let's read that now. Second Samuel chapter 6. David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Bel Judah. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who was enthroned between the cherubim. They set the ark of God in a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir, wood, fir wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, 
sistrums and cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah, as it is today. David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Odom-Edom and his whole family. It was then reported to King David that the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom's family and that and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. When he and the whole house of Israel were brought, were bringing up the ark of the of the Lord with shouts and with the sounds and with the sound of ram, uh, the ram's horn, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michael turned down, looked down from the window, and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people went home. Then David returned, when David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter, Michael, came out to meet him. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she said. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of, the su of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. David replied to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people, people Israel. I will dance before the Lord and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And Saul's daughter, Michael, had no child to the day of her death. After its capture by the Philistines at Aphek in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it remained in Philistia for seven months, then briefly at Beth Shemesh. The last time we read about the ark was all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, when the Philistines returned it and when it was then placed in the house of Abinadab's in Kirith, Jerem. And there it remained, shelved, and essentially neglected during the reign of Saul. But now that David had taken Jerusalem and made it the political capital of the kingdom, the ark could now be retrieved and have a permanent home there. So David first went up with 30,000 men to bring the ark from the house of Abinadab. Now, for those who may not know why the ark was so important to Israel, let me just briefly try to explain. Described as that which bore the name of God himself, the ark represented the presence of God who dwelled among his people in a special way. And as such, it was to be handled 
with reverence, even in its transportation from one place to another. Exodus chapter 25, verse 14, specified that if it was to be transported, it had to be carried by the Levite priests on their shoulders by means of poles uh, passed through golden rings attached to the ark. But even then, those priests, those Levites, Levites were prohibited from touching the ark or even looking in it because of its holiness. Now, why David overlooked these requirements, it's impossible to know, but he did. And nevertheless, he ordered the ark of God to be placed on a new cart, not on poles, not to be carried on shoulders, and had Uzzah and Ahil, Abinadab's descendants, he ordered them, he had them guide it. And then he proceeded to Jerusalem with music and dancing. Well, somewhere along the way, they passed over a rough patch on the road and the oxen stumbled, threatened to throw the ark from the cart. Instinctively, Uzzah reached out and took hold of it so it wouldn't fall. But as soon as he did, it says in verse 7 that this angered God and he struck him dead on the spot. And the reason given was for his irreverence. Now, in case some of you may be thinking that the Lord was being too harsh here. The punishment was too severe for simply trying to keep the ark from falling to the ground. I want you to try to look at it in light of His absolute holiness. You see, God required that sacred tasks be done in a sacred manner. But when the ark was placed on a cart instead of, in, uh, instead of gold rings, it shows that they didn't take seriously what God had said had to be handled with reverence. If this still doesn't make sense to, to you, then, then maybe this quote from a, from, one, from a commentator will help. He said, to touch the ark is to impinge on God's holiness, to draw too close and presume too much. There's really no way of knowing how Uzzah grew up with the ark in his home. But the question comes to mind, is it possible to become too accustomed to things that are holy. Well, I believe that it is. And if we're not care careful, we too can fall into this mindset. Let me give you an example. Every month, every other month, we remember our Lord's atoning work on the cross at Calvary by celebrating communion together as a church. The saints at Corinth began to see this as a ritual, and their conduct at the Lord's table was not pleasing to the Lord. And for this failure, Paul told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, that this was one of the reasons why a number of them were sick, and why some of them even died. We therefore need to be mindful of the holiness of God and the sacredness of our worship. See, the Lord our God doesn't take our insensitivity to His holiness lightly. 
We also have the example of Ananias and Sapphira, who were more concerned about what people thought about them than how God saw them. And so they lied. They lied to the Holy Spirit that they had given all the proceeds of their sale of their property rather than just part of them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 tells us that God is a holy God who calls people to His holiness, to holiness. So you see, He takes our sin very seriously. Uzzah is a reminder to us that God's holiness is such that sinful man cannot draw near to him unless he provides a means to do so. After, and let me explain, after the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God had to expel Adam and Eve from the Garden. God provided them with coverings. But this was only a partial solution. Then when God delivered the nation of Israel from their Egyptian bondage, he gave them his law for Mount Sinai. And there on that mountain, on Mount Zion, his glory and his majesty were revealed to the Israelites. And they began to grasp the holiness and the glory of God. They rightly perceived that to get too close to God would be fatal. So they decided that they needed a mediator to intercede with God on their behalf. So they asked Moses to fulfill that role. And he agreed, commending them for their decision. You see, sinful men need a mediator to approach a holy God. The tabernacle, the ark, the priests and the sacrifices provided a short-term solution. But there was still a need for a permanent solution to the problem of sinful men approaching a holy God. It was God who solved this problem in the person of Jesus Christ. In his incarnation, God took on human flesh. He identified with sinful men to provide an eternal solution for the problem of, of our sin and the danger and the danger of drawing too near to him. And it's through him that we have the forgiveness of God and the boldness now to enter into God's presence. So the invitation of the gospel in the New Testament is that sinful men can now draw near to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So my question is this. Have you drawn near to God through faith in Jesus Christ? God's only provision for men to enter into fellowship with him? If not, then I urge you to do so today. To do it as soon as possible. And if you stick around, uh, I'll give you an opportunity to do that when I end this message. But here's the thing. God will allow us to go to hell any way we please. But if we would go to heaven... It must be by the way of the means that God himself has provided. The shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one other thing this passage shows us here, this first attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem, is that even though the atmosphere was joyful, exciting, and engaging, 
in reality, none of it, none of it pleased God because it was all done in disobedience to his word. See, like them, we're often tempted to judge a worship experience by how it makes us feel. But when we realize that worship is about pleasing God, we're driven to his word so we can know how he wants to be worshipped. It's hard to receive it in our consumer-oriented culture. But here's the truth. Worship isn't about what pleases us. It's about what pleases God. It pleases Him when we sing to Him. It pleases Him when we put down those barriers, when we put down those apprehensions, when we sing to the Lord with all our heart, with all our might. It pleases God to hear our voices coming up to Him. So if you're one to say, yeah, I'll go to church, but I'll sing in my mind and I'll sing in my in the quietness of um, here while I'm sitting in this chair or whatnot. Well, that's, that's good, but understand this. The Lord really wants to hear from you. He wants you to utter those words. He wants you to worship him with all your heart, with all your might. Don't be ashamed. The Lord made you the way you are. The Lord created your voice box. He knows that maybe in the ears of other people you don't sound great. But to Him, those worship songs that you sing when you worship Him, they're beautiful sounds. And He loves to hear them. So don't deny him that. Don't deny him that pleasure of hearing you sing to him. To him, you have a lovely singing voice. Well, all this, this death, causes David's mood to change from joy to anger because of what God had done to Uzzah. But even in his anger, we still see that he feared the Lord. And so it says that he decided not to move the ark again until the Lord instructed him to do so. So he delivered it to the house of Obedidim of Gath, where it remained for three months. And while it was there, verse 11 says that it's in him, his entire household, and everything that was there had been blessed. Everything had been blessed. And so when David heard, that the presence of the ark was bringing blessings to the household of Obed-Edom, he desired that blessing too. And he tried again. Now, he, did this, he didn't do this out of selfish, for selfish reasons. He wanted the blessings for himself to be blessed as king, but also he wanted the blessings to fall on the entire nation of Israel. And that could only be done, he felt that that only could be done if it was placed there in Jerusalem. However, in this attempt, in this new attempt, David was now determined to do God's work in God's way. So he sent the Levites up there to Obed-Edom, and they brought the Ark of Jerusalem on their shoulders. And just to make sure that God wouldn't be displeased, every time the Levites took six steps, or they advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. And First Chronicles further tells us that when no judgment fell, they knew that God was pleased with what they were doing. And when the procession reached the tent in Jerusalem, the priest offered 14 more sacrifices. Well, during that procession, David danced with all his might before the Lord. 
demonstrating how fully engaged his act of worship was. Verse 14, this is important here, this also says that he was dressed for the occasion in a priestly linen ephod. Those who aren't familiar with this story or who will try to tell the story will say that he was dancing naked in front of the ephod, but or in front of the ark, but he wasn't. He was, we're told that he was wearing an ephod. Now what's interesting here is that although he wasn't a priest from the tribe of Levi, David here, by wearing that ephod, was acting as both king and priest in that moment, which is a picture of Jesus, the son of David, who according to Hebrews chapter 6 through 8 also holds both offices after the order of Melchizedek. If you don't know who that is, I I encourage you to read those two chapters, chapter 6 through 8 in Hebrews. It tells you all about it. Well, the celebration was loud. It was very loud. And the people brought the ark with them with shouting and the blowing of the trumpet. And just as a side note, it's believed that David may have composed Psalm 24 for this occasion. But for now, no one could contain the joy of the presence of the Lord, the King of glory that accompanied the ark into the city of David. But there was a problem. When Michael... Saul's Saul's daughter, his wife, observed everything that was going on from a window. She says that she despised David in her heart. She was unimpressed by everything that she was seeing. And the only thing that caught her attention, caught her attention was that her husband was leaping around and dancing wildly through the streets in front of this ark. In her mind, David, David's expressive worship, the way he was worshiping, was beneath the king's dignity. So she despised him. That is, she held him in contempt and scorn in the same way that Goliath had despised and ridiculed young David. It was the same word that we see back in, during, that, during that chapter in 1 Samuel. She despised him. But down below, it was a different story. David pitched a tent in Jerusalem for the ark, and in worship again he offered burnt offerings symbolizing full devotion and commitment to the Lord, and peace offerings, symbolizing peace and fellowship with the Lord and with one another. In a pastoral manner, David spoke words of blessing to the people in the Lord's name and then gave them some cake. He gave them some uh, a fruit cake and a cake of raisins, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins. And with this, the people returned home with joy in their hearts. They now had tangible tokens of God's blessings in their hands and had God's blessing pronounced on them and were full of joy that the ark was now in David's city. And after blessing the people, David went home to bless his household. But before one word of blessing fell from his lips, Michael met him and ridiculed him, calling him foolish. David replied that his actions were before the Lord and reminded her that the Lord had chosen him instead of her father and his house and made him the leader of Israel. Even if he was humble in his own eyes, the slave girls who Michael disparaged would honor David, which Michael, which was really what Michael should have done. 
And so because of her critical attitude, Michael suffered the reproach of bearing no children to the day of her death. Again, although this seems too harsh of a punishment, her barrenness was actually a blessing from the Lord. See, it prevented Saul's family from continuing in Israel. And it stopped any kind of threat to David's throne. Back in 1 Samuel, again, chapter 23, David and Jonathan, his best friend, his beloved friend, they had made a covenant to reign together to coexist and be kings together. But God rejected that plan by allowing Jonathan to be killed in battle. So you see, the Lord wanted the line and throne of David to be kept apart from any other dynasty so that there wouldn't be any confusion as to who truly the line of the Messiah had come from. This exchange with Michael Michael also reflects a total inversion. David, who is thought to be despised by Michael, is at, is in fact honored in Israel by Yahweh. God. Michael, who thinks she's in a position of strength, is dismissed by the narrative as barren and hopeless. There's something here. Of the, exalt, of, of the exalted king, or the exalted being humbled, and the humbled being exalted. David is indeed the one who humbles himself, and who, by the power of God, is exalted. Here, Michael serves as a prototype of the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees of our Lord's time. As Michael had come to enjoy her position as daughter of the king, so the scribes had come to enjoy their privileged position as religious leaders in Israel. They feared losing their power, and they feared losing their status. They challenged Jesus about his authority. They looked upon upon the Lord with disdain because he associated with the lowly. Just as Michael bore no fruit, neither did the scribes and Pharisees. Those who would worship God must come to Him with humility, not pride. And so the lesson is this. There is often barrenness in the life and ministry of the overly critical. David here in our story is a prototype of Christ in this text and beyond. He was both king and priest David laid aside his royal robes and humbled himself just as our Lord laid aside his royal robes and humbled himself. David refused to allow any class distinctions when it came to worship. He didn't allow that to get in the way. It shows us that God, that godly worship will not tolerate classes of inferiors and superiors and superiors the gospel equalizes all men we're all sinners condemned to god's eternal torment and we're all saved apart from our own merits or works we're saved solely on the basis of christ's atoning work on the cross of Calvary. How then could David do anything but humble himself in worshiping God, even though his wife despised him for doing so? And so as I close now, let me ask you that question again. Have you come to the Lord? Have you drawn near to God? And if you never have, and if you want to, I want to invite you to the cross. I want you to, you can come to the cross and ask for his forgiveness.
look to Jesus there on the cross and ask him to forgive you of his sins, of your sins. And he will. And you will be made right with God. Your relationship with God will be restored and you will be able to have that fellowship that you need and that he's, he desires as well. So if you're ready to do that, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And with all your heart, with all sincerity, I want you to pray this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I now turn from my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Now fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me in my newborn again life. In your name, amen. If you pray that, you're a born again believer. You're a child of God. And all your sins have been forgiven and you can know for a certainty, for a fact that when you die, you will be with the Lord for all of eternity. So we want to know about it. Reach out to us. We want to hear about it. We want to pray with you. We want to maybe lead you in your next steps of your new Christian walk. And if you need a Bible, we can send you one from here. So let us know again. Um, if you're here in the Northeast, in the Northeast El Paso, we, our doors are open. You can come check us out on Sundays for church. And you know, we, we believe, we know that you'll be blessed by hearing God's word being taught here. So thank you again for joining us this week. Um, I hope this message blessed you. And again, if you have any questions at all, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, thank you for watching. Be blessed. Have a great week. Goodbye and farewell.